Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. Joining me to help manage the questions is Grace Barnett from the Compass office. Hello, Grace. Hello. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in. A good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on the Compass podcast, it's bloody complicated. Our guest is Ed Miliband. Ed needs no introduction. Now he's the Shadow Business Secretary, and he was, of course, leader of the Labour Party from 2010 to 2015, a hugely successful podcaster in his own right with reasons to be cheerful, and a long-term friend of both Compass and mine. As ever, I'll I'll ask our guests a few questions, and then it's over to Compass members to ask their questions. So, Ed, we always start with a question, and we, and we kind of mean, really, how are you? I mean, but firstly, where are you, so people can locate you, and, and how are you feeling? I'm feeling very happy to be on your podcast. I, I quite like this live podcasting thing. We, I record mine, and then we sort of, we have to do massive editing, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of impressed by anyone who can do it as live, and we've done some live ones with audiences uh, pre-COVID, but I'm impressed. Um, I am uh, in London. Um, uh, I've been in Parliament uh, this week, uh, and um, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm fine. But the um, it's obviously a very, very grim time for the country, um, and I see that as a constituency MP in Doncaster. I see it uh, as the shadow business secretary, um, and so you know, it's a very, very kind of worrying. You know, it's obviously an incredibly worrying moment. So um, most people will know, you know, much about you, but you know, take us through. Give us some, you know, the, the bits that matter to you in terms of your your political life. You know, meeting maybe that's you, meeting you. Nick. Yeah, yes, of course, of course, of course, meeting me. Definitely, um, that's um, the starting point. Um, <laughs> well, we should say to people when we met. Actually, you were working for Gordon Brown. Yeah. I always, you know don't that say I, like that. Don't say you, like that. You know that I always say that um, I was an advisor to Gordon Brown, but he never took my advice. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't quite say that. And I was working for Harriet Harman, and then I went to work for Gordon Brown. But sorry, what, uh, what's your question? Well, just your, your, your political life, you know, what, the jobs you've done, the things that have influenced you, what's shaped, you know, the Ed Miller band that we see before us right now? I suppose you have to start with my mum and dad, who are a big influence on their influence. Uh, you know, everyone's parents are a big influence on them. I think, I think the fact that they were both Jewish refugees is a big influence because I think it drove them, the experience of the war being displaced, I think drove them to sort of feel you had a contribution to make to sort of change in the world. My dad through, did it through being an academic, my mom did it through by, did it by being an activist, running a, running, she ran something called the Daycare Trust. And so I think growing up, uh, you know, obviously it was a very political household, people may know, but also a sense of sort of, I mean, so I sometimes describe it, it sounds a bit sort of religious, but you know, sort of secular religious, um, 
sort of a sense of responsibility to try and sort of leave the world a better place than you found it. And then I went to work for, well, I, after university, I went, got a job in TV, went, went to work for Harriet, um, went to work for Gordon, spent a lot of time working for him, but felt my frustrations, as I think you will have known, New Labour, became leader, lost the election. I'm speeding up a bit here. Uh, you obviously spent five years on the back benches working on this like climate, doing the podcast, thinking about ideas. I mean, what, so, so the big influence is my parents, the experience of being leader, perhaps we'll get on to what I learned from that experience, but in sort of shorthand, you know, uh, best when we're boldest, as somebody once said. And, and, and I think, I think one of the things I suppose, I suppose that, you know, is important and I think it's really hard doing this as a being doing this as a politician is to constantly be trying to learn. I mean, this podcast, <laughs> this podcast I do, you know, it was Jeff Lloyd, who's a experienced broadcaster, suggested doing it three or four years ago to me, and we've been doing it for the last three years. And you know, I use it as a way to learn. I use it as a way to learn in my current brief, the business and climate brief, and I used it as a way to learn about you know what are the good ideas out there. You know, what do you learn about politics? So I think I think constantly trying to learn is really important in politics and not not maybe not commonly not as commonly practiced as it could or should be. And and I've always, you know, I've always thought of you of, of being on the left of the party. You know, I'm not sure you know, I think you've had jobs where that's been difficult, you know, but I've always seen you, you you know, you famously kind of did a bit of time in Tony Benn's office, you know, and I've always seen I you as someone a sixteen year old, yeah. Yeah, on, on, on the left. I mean, is that is that true? Yeah. Have you always felt quite radical yeah. and on the left? Definitely. And I think I've become, I've maybe defied the normal stereotype. I think I've become more radical. Um, quite quite Benite in that sense. With age. Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way. But, um, but, but as, as he became more radical. Uh, but I mean, you know, look, I, I ran to be leader because I felt that we as a party needed to move on from new Labour, not because I think didn't think that the Labour government achieved some really important things. It did achieve some really important things, but because I thought particularly economically on issues like inequality, uh, we haven't got it right. And I think that, I think fundamentally, I felt we needed a different economic. I, I sort of feel like the, my characterization of new Labour would be that we accepted large parts, but not all, of the economic settlement of, that we'd inherited. But, you know, significant differences. I don't think it's just true to say it's just the same. But the, the big advances were redistribution, investment in the public realm and all that. But I think there were, sort of, there were un massive unaddressed issues about things like inequality, about the way our economy worked, whole series of insecurity at work, you know, the precariat, all of that things that have almost become bigger issues now. And I felt that it was really important to sort of, to, to kind of, you know, that the, those issues needed addressing. And my sort of attempt was to try and put those issues front and centre of the political agenda. Now, obviously, to some extent, put them in the centre of the political agenda, but failed in the, to win the election. And so, if I forgot, sorry, I forgot your question. Well, well, we'll carry on with that. You know, so what, you know, you, you talked earlier about always trying to learn. You know, what, what do you take from that? What would you have done, what, what would you have done differently in that, in that leadership? I mean, period? I think that in a way, well, I, I, I think in the election, I feel I, I, I think 
I failed. I, I was sort of, I was not reassuring enough for the people who wanted reassurance or radical enough for the people who wanted radicalism. And therefore, I, you know, in retrospect, I wish I'd been bolder. You know, so I cut tuition fees to 6,000 pounds, or I, I didn't cut them, but I, I had a manifesto pledge. You know, it was kind of like the problem is it was a bit twixt and between policy. I should have said, well, we're going to abolish tuition fees or not bother. But, you know, I mean, I would have, the thing to have done would have been to, 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 be, to have been bolder. So I think somehow the, the sum of the part wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the 2015 manifesto, but the sum of the parts wasn't bold enough, in my view. And I was, you know, in a sense, I was trying to shift political debate, and it's quite hard to do that in one go, but I, I, I take full responsibility. It was my, you know, I'd grown up under New Labour, I was trying to move away from New Labour. It was a hard thing to do, but, you know, it was my failure, my responsibility. I've been very careful since the election of 2015 not to blame anyone else because I don't think I should blame anyone else. I think it should, you know, the extent to which we lost, it was my fault. Um, I had to take 100% responsibility for that. Uh, I, I think that's way too harsh. I mean, I think there's, you know, and um, what you just described was a kind of political interregnum between New Labour and what, you know, could and maybe still will, you know, you know come next. Um, does that make me a morbid symptom? It doesn't make you a morbid symptom. It makes it, a, you know, the old was not yet dead and the new was not yet born. But I don't think you were the morbid symptom. Well, I, think I think that's was... a good way of putting it. I was struggling to articulate a different way that we could move forward as a society and an economy. And in truth, Neil, I think that has been the, the you know, that is a really important uh, lesson or challenge that has been in place since the 2008 financial crisis uh, you know in a sense the 2008 financial crisis you know could should have been the moment for reassessment of our economic model because deregulation all of that stuff you know the triumph of the market you know was came crashing down to protect to, to, to working people's costs but we are still as a society it's the same in the US um, the left all around the world indeed you know the right i'm afraid that the, the sort of rather nasty right has been much better at at if you like articulating a kind of popular popular agenda um in response to some of those some of those issues but, but i think you know you, you kind of reference the fact that you could have been bolder on policy yeah. and, and, and maybe you could have been but uh, we were discussing the other day that the question isn't so much about the what. The question is, is increasingly about the how. Even if yeah. you've been, you know, you've been bolder and people may have liked a cut of, you know, tuition fees to zero, yeah. not yeah. to, you know, it, it's the deliverability and the feasibility of that stuff. I, I think there is something in that, isn't there, about how do we prove and how could you have proved better that we could actually deliver stuff? So that isn't just about the policy, it's about you know, systems of government, democracy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do you so think say more what you mean, Neil? Well, how do governments in the 21st century make things happen? How do they make change happen? And the right have a very easy, you know, demagoguery is easy and democracy is very hard, isn't it? And I don't think we've persuaded people yet that, you know, we, we, we can deliver radical things. Well, that is true. And it's not, and, and that's a sort of slight chicken and egg problem, which is until you get into government and actually deliver the things, people are skeptical about whether you can deliver the things. Uh, I think that is a, I think that's a very, I, I don't look, if I, if I had, if I had a sort of good answer to that, I probably would have been the prime minister. I, 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 um, 
uh, and I would have still definitely been doing the podcast, by the way, uh, your podcast. <laughs> the, uh, but, but I thought you were getting at something else which you and I have talked about over the years, which I think is true as well, which is another thing I didn't succeed in doing. This is going to be what this hour is like. I think it's creating the social movements, or not creating the social movements, that's the wrong way of putting it, but acting in alliance with a broad range of social movements to, to sort of, artic not just articulate an agenda, but sort of build popular support for an agenda. I think, I think, there's, I think, that, is, I think that is true. And, and as I say, you, you know, you and I... You and, and, I as, and as leader, you know, does that, because you're doing PMQs, because you're doing media appearances, because you're managing the country, uh, the, the, the party, is it, do you feel it was impossible to think about that stuff and relate to that stuff? I mean, I think it's twofold. I think it's one that... Um, and, you know, people, when I, when I was running for leader, I attended a fundraiser which Neil Kinnock was speaking at, and he had, uh, arrived late, and he was saying at the end, I wouldn't wish this job on my worst enemy. And I thought, I wonder what he means by that. And it turns out I kind of now know a little bit more what he meant by that. But so that's one thing. And then I suppose, I suppose, secondly, you know, I had come off a very difficult, bruising uh, leadership election against David, and, and, a very narrow win and I was I was I was constantly worried about disunity in the party you know because I suppose I'd grown up and this is where you can't divorce you know you can't divorce me from my sort of background and, and where I grew up you know I grew up in the 80s when Labour was very divided and I thought division was just a nightmare was a nightmare for us so I was I was you know my, you know, I was constantly prizing keeping the party together and unity. Now that is, that sounds like an excuse, so it's not an excuse because, you know, it's just more what was going through my, my, I didn't want to create a sort of milliband faction, you know what I mean? Uh, and so let's take that into, you know, the, the next experience for the party of Corbynism. Um, so, you, I mean, you, you had, a, I, mean, a, I mean, not as anywhere near to the same extent, but, you, but not everyone in the PLP, let's say, you know, were, were completely behind sure. your leadership. You had a narrow leadership. You had to manage that. I mean, you know, what, what do you take from the Corbyn years? Partly that, you know, hostility in the PLP. But, you know, what do we learn from that experience to add to the things we've learned from, you know, from your experience? I mean, look, the... the I'm very careful not to be critical of, um, I was very critical, careful not to be critical of Jeremy, because I, I sort of, I take this view that it's such a difficult job, this job, as I discovered, showed, um, that I was very, whoever had been my successor, I thought I've got to, you know, be as loyal, were loyal. I think the positive I take is that, I think in 2017, although we didn't win the election, and it's really important to, to, to sort of underline, we obviously didn't win the election in 2017. And I think, I think probably we said in the Labour Together report, which I was part of, that we acted a bit like too much like we had, and the Tories acted like they'd lost and, and learned lessons from it. There was an appeal of the boldness in 2017. I mean, 2017, as somebody said to me the other day, it slightly came out of nowhere as an election result, but there was, it showed, I mean, I, I actually bracket 2017 and Brexit together in a, in a sort of maybe uh, surprising or not maybe not surprising way. You know, what do I feel about the Brexit referendum? I represent a seat which is one of the most leave seats amongst the North in the country. People wanted big change. I mean, yeah. people thought, okay, I'll, I, you know, I want primary colours. I mean, that's sort of what I'm saying about myself in 2015. 
I, I didn't articulate that well about some of the parts, but, you know, there was a primary colours aspect to Brexit. You know, I just talked to so many people in my constituency. I remember the day after I was doing an event about um, something else, actually, in my in Doncaster, and uh, it was actually mainly Remain people, but but and this and this um, woman who voted Leave said, "Oh well, I voted Leave because I wanted a better future for my children and grandchildren." And I think a sense of, you know, we want big change, and 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 to the extent that twenty seventeen did better than expected, and you know, you did increase the share of the vote by more than anyone's exactly. Um, it was the I think it was the primary colour sense of big change that 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 that, um, uh, that people. Uh, wanted, and I think it's really important this because I've, I, I've mentioned this Labour Together report, and some of your uh, listeners, viewers, must might have read it or might have seen it. You know, yeah, can we put it up in the? Can we put a link up in the um, in the chat box? And I was sort of involved in this. I, you know, I was not the lead. Some people said I was the lead because I wasn't lead because it was a broad-based. You know, people. You know, Manuel Cortez from the TSSA, Lucy Powell, Shabana Mahmood from the PLP, people like James Medway, but you know, Mary Wimbrey, broad spectrum of people. And you know, one of the things that we said in there was this, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the importance of offering, that there is a coalition to be built on economic transformation. And obviously, this report was, to some extent, was published during the COVID crisis, but, but it was sort of, it was certainly sort of conceived before it. But, you know, well, we'll talk about the current situation that we're in, but, but you know, I, I think that, so, so I think, I mean, look, what, do, what do I see in our society? I see deep inequality and insecurity, and we've got to do something about it. And a Labour government's got to do something about it. So when I say economic transformation, that can sound a bit sort of just, you know, empty, but, but it isn't empty. It's about how do we tackle the deep inequalities, insecurities, uh, climate crisis that we face as a society. And so, you know, that's sort of what I'm interested in. That's what I'm about. And I do think there's an agenda to be built around that. But, but... It's complicated and, you know, I think 2019 showed, in contrast to 2017, there's many reasons, as the Labour Together report says for 2019, is if people don't really believe it can be delivered, which was sort of implicit in your question, you know, then you're not going to succeed. Okay, so let's move from Ed Miliband leadership, Jeremy Corbyn leadership to Keir Starmer leadership. You know, where, where are we now? Um, and are we building something, you know, new and different and appropriate? Or are we kind of, you know, going around in circles? In what sense? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I mean, my worry from the, from the outside is the worry of, of generals, you know, always fighting the last war. And, and making up for the deficit of you know 2019, of which there were some, but as you said, you know there was there is a kind of there's a primary colours need in the world today, and how can we do primary colours plus competence plus deliver I mean, deliverability? As you might expect me to say, I don't see it that way. I've known Kia a long time, a decade or or more. This is somebody who has got very deep values, uh, bags of integrity. Um, you know, you know, the, 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 I'll come on to the, 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 the current situation, but I mean, you know, this is somebody who didn't build a career in sort of corporate law. He built a career, you know, fighting for the dispossessed, uh, fighting the unfashionable causes. Um, and I think it's really important this. And, and what do I perceive, think that he is trying to do? He is, trying to re-establish 
Labour's right to be heard. He is very conscious of the crisis that we're in and that, you know, there's something very deep about this crisis, as we know, very grim. And I think he has been absolutely right to go about this by saying we are going to be constructive opposition. I know there are lots of Labour people who would like to see him, you know, kicking the government more and all that. But I, I, I honestly think that what he's doing is 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 right. It is it is what I think the country uh, wants in this moment of uh, crisis. And he is also very conscious, and I think this is right, which is that it's a four-year project, not a four-month project. And, you know, I, I think if I can put it this way, I sort of think, you know, he's been more strategic than I was, because I think he is recognising that you've got to build, you've got to build back Labour's, you know, when the electorate rejects you, this is why I sort of slightly disagree with the people who say I was too negative about Labour's record in government when I was the leader. When you lose an election, people are like, okay, well, you know, we, you lost the election and, you know, we sort of, we're dismissing you for a bit. He is trying to rightly say, look, we're turning the page as a party. We're recognising some things we got wrong. And, and he's in a process of rebuilding. And I suppose the other thing I would say, Neil, is having done the job myself, you know, I do think you've got a sort of, I think people have, it's like, it's like, you can either sort of, you know, there is this sort of betrayal principle in the labour movement, which is, you know, the default assumption is, you know, we're being sold down the river. I, I don't think that should be the default assumption. Yeah. The default assumption should be, you know, this is somebody with bags of integrity, bags of conviction, deep history in, in, in fighting for social justice. Let's give a bit of latitude here to, 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 to sort of, you know, um, you know, figure out the path. And it's got to be his path. You know, it's not my path. It's a team effort, but it's got to be his path to, to, to rebuilding the party. And, and you know, so, so and, 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 you know, I, I really like it when he says, you know, that he starts to be asked, you know, which leader are you modelling yourself? And he says, I'm modelling myself on myself. And, you know, that's why I say it's not, it's not my path, it's his path. It's got to be a path that he leads. And people like me are going to be in support of him. But, but I think, so, so, so that's kind of what I think. Okay, let, let's work out your, before I hand you over to Grace and the members, uh, let's work out your bit of the path, which is, you know, trying to develop a radical, purposeful yeah. business, of, you know, pro proposition. Early days, you're thinking about kind of, you know, big picture. Tell us what you think, what you see as, the, as, as that big picture and some of the kind of opportunities for, you know, real advance in terms of thinking and development of policy ideas and alliances. I mean, I think there are big opportunities. And I think I'm very struck by the difference between where this debate is now and where it was a decade ago when I was leader. And you and I have discussed this. I mean, you know, whether it is the climate crisis where business, in some senses, some parts of business are leading the way in saying this has got to be front and centre, whether it's the need for an active industrial strategy where people are crying out in the current crisis for an industrial strategy, or issues around shareholder primacy, and you and I have discussed this issue of which your listeners, viewers might know about, the B Corps, you know, calling for a different way of thinking about the company and what matters to the company. But, but so, so, so first point, 
there's a coalition to be built here with progressive businesses. Second point, what's the frame? The frame is that, as Keir said when he uh, got the job, people have suffered so much during this crisis that the least we owe to them is not simply to build back business as usual, but to build back better. And for me, that is about um, not recognizing the problems in our economy, which have been exposed by the crisis. The, you know, the insecurity of our welfare state, the way that you know, some people have had the choice to, to, work, uh, to go to work, some people haven't, and some people have been powerless to ensure that they're safe uh, at work, powerlessness um, uh, at work. The commonly talked about issue now of the pay of essential workers, you know, market rewards, how our society rewards, high carbon, low carbon, green space, um, air quality, all of those issues, these have all been exposed by the crisis. And we have an obligation, in my view, to act on them. And the key thing is what I say about the frame is, we don't just want to build the old economy we had back. I think it's really important that we save every business and save every job, which I don't think the government is doing. We may want to talk about that. Save as many of those businesses and jobs as we can. But we also want to build, I had this way of thinking about this, rescue, uh, recovery and renewal. We also want to renew our economy to be low carbon, more equal, more fair, more productive. And that's the agenda that, um, that I want to build. And I think it's a really exciting agenda. And the trade unions, by the way, are really important uh, in this. I think it's very interesting the way the government has, if you like, relied on the trade unions actually in this crisis in different ways. But trade unions aren't just important in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, they're important afterwards um, uh, as well. To, to, to give you a preview of my podcast, which I'm sure you want, and a shameless plug, you know, we interviewed somebody from New Zealand today because Jacinda Ardern is in the middle of this election campaign. I mean, it's quite interesting what's happening in relation to the labour market in New Zealand. Jacinda got this guy who was the National Party Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, to do a review mm. into um, uh, the, the sort of arrangements. And he came up he came up with the proposals on sectoral collective bargaining. I mean, he's a guy who was the National Party Prime Minister. I mean, I did say it's slightly like asking David Cameron in 10 years' time to do a review into our relations with Europe. But which I don't think we should be doing. But you know, it, uh, it, it's like I mean, it is interesting. So, so I think there's a big agenda to be dealt with, and it's a bigger agenda in alliance with um, progressive business. Hello, this is Grace from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I'm lucky enough to come from a large and politically diverse family. We really did have the full political spectrum represented over Christmas dinner. But in spite of our differences, we still actually like each other. Um, I've always known, because of this, that politics should be more about listening and learning from the people we disagree with than shouting at them and fighting with them. And of course, I've definitely known for a long time that it really is bloody complicated. So I was so happy that when one day I discovered Compass quite by accident through their brilliant work on the Progressive Alliance in the 2017 general election. Since then, it's been an absolute pleasure to once again be part of a political family where talking to people in different political parties, admitting that you alone don't have all the answers, is not just okay, but actively encouraged. So if you'd like to find out more about Compass, you can visit compassonline.org.uk. And now, back to the conversation.
Grace, I've never seen so many questions in the chat thing. You've got to try and sort those out and get as many to Ed as, as possible. Thank you. Well, yeah, we've got loads to get through, so we'll get do as many as we can. There were a lot of people asking about electoral reform, proportional representation, that kind of thing. So I'll get one question on that to kind of sum them all up. So uh, Kleiner Jordan, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, now as an audience member, you should be able to speak now. Hi there. I'm just trying to find the question I typed in now. There's so many questions, it's disappeared. Um, basically, the question is about how there are uh, the, the countries with the best coronavirus responses um, actually have proportional uh, voting systems. Um, so countries like New Zealand, Iceland, Taiwan. And so uh, amongst many other things, this really shows how the, the type of democracy that we have is really a matter of life and death. And having a democratic voting system, which really represents the people in parliament, is, is really urgent. And so previously you supported um, moving to the alternative yeah. vote, which yeah. of course is not proportional. No. But um, I, I'm wondering whether you will be able to push for a proportional voting system within the Labour Party, considering it's, it's so urgent now. Look, it's a good question. I know there are lots of people in the chat who, who raised it. I, I'm, I look, I've been a long-standing supporter of electoral uh, reform, which is why I supported the alternative vote. We didn't win the uh, referendum. I think Keir said in his leadership campaign that he would have a consultation with the Labour Party about it. I think that's the right thing to do. And that's obviously a discussion that we will have. And I recognise, I do recognise what you're saying about, you know, our system and the and look let's be honest our system just has massive injustices um in terms of who is enfranchised and who is disenfranchised where the incentives are who to vote for which voters matter uh, and you know it doesn't take many tens of you know tens of thousands of voters to turn one result into another result we saw that in 2017 we've seen it in previous elections we saw it to an extent in 2015 so look i i you know i'm a supporter and i recognize definitely what you're saying I'd also expand your point, though, which is, you know, I think it's not just about the electoral system you have. It's about the sort of attitude of mind that you have in relation to policymaking and in relation to sort of how you fight this government. So before I took this job, I was on a commission, I was chair, co-chairing the commission uh, on climate change for the Institute of Public Policy Research with Caroline Lucas and Laura Sandys, who is a former... Conservative MP, and you know we were working incredibly cooperative together. Hillary Benn is now on that um, co-chairing uh, that commission. So, and you know Caroline and I talk quite a lot. We work together on things. You know, I think you know I care deeply about climate, the climate crisis. Caroline has led the way on the climate crisis. So I think there's different ways of working with people, um, uh, and you know there's going to have to be a discussion about electoral reform as well. Brilliant, thank you. Um, moving on to a completely different topic, Ken Kenwoods, you had a question about basic income. Yes, um, universal basic income. Do, do you think this can be sold to the electorate without some sort of giving some sort of idea as to how it would be implemented? Good question, Ken. So I am a sympathiser with the UBI. For a number of reasons. One, because I think that the current welfare system, universal credit, is not only intrusive, not only demeaning, not only doesn't have 
that much popular support in terms of the people on it, rightly, uh, and it's called terrible, terrible hardship and misery. So, so the, the, the system we have is, is, is problematic. Secondly, there's a chap called Matthew Taylor who runs the RSA, the Royal Society for the Arts, and he's got this thing which is, is, is about the sort of the power to choose, is his phrase, I think. And I think it's a very good way of putting it, which is that the attraction of a UBI is it gives people more choices in life, more choices about caring and properly values caring roles, um, more choices about the jobs they take, and, and, and it gives people a platform and, and I don't think this is the main reason, there's this sort of automation issue. I think that's not the main reason for it, but I think it's, it's sort of in the background. Now, okay, so that's the sort of principle level. Um, it's a big, big change. It's not going to happen tomorrow and it's not going to happen in the first term of the Labour government either. I'm sorry to disappoint some people on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, what is the big so challenge, the challenge is this work question, which is, are you paying people to do nothing? Now, my sort of philosophy on this has always been, we covered it on our first episode of our podcast, is we should at least do some pilots on this, because all the pilots and trials that have been done on this say that quite the opposite from it discouraging work, it, it, either that is marginal or not or non-existent issue, because actually you've got things going both ways here. Yes, you might be helping people to exercise their caring responsibilities which is a good thing but the current welfare system has these massive marginal tax rates whereby for every extra pound you know you go into work and you're hardly better off you earn more and you lose 70 percent of your income and you know we, we're not in favor of well you know we've got rid of those very very high marginal tax rates at the top but we still have them at the bottom so my view about this ken is it's a massive change it's not going to happen tomorrow i think it, i think it is important to sort of give it a chance and give it a hearing and that's why i would find some ways of piloting it as other countries are doing last thing i'll say is i say to people who are opponents of the ubi uh, and by the way this crisis sorry i should have mentioned the crisis i don't want to go on too long but the crisis is in a way exposed uh, highlighted the case in, in some senses for ubi um i said you aren't if everything about look fine that's it's totally reasonable disagreement but the thing about it is a big intervention which would change the nature of our society potentially in quite positive ways. So tell me the other ways, T tell me other things that you, we can do which are, you know, big interventions. Some people say we should have universal basic services like free bus travel and other things. That's a very legitimate debate about where your, you know, where your attention should be um, focused. Yes, there's a cost, big cost to it. That's partly why I say it can't be done overnight, but I think it's got to be kept alive as an idea. Thanks. Sorry, my answers are too long. No, no, that's perfect. Next question then, uh, Matthew, Matthew Halbert. So I'm going to read out his question. Lib Dems and Labour can always find things to have a go at each other about, but isn't the truth that to displace the Tories, as we all want to do, the two parties need each other to be successful? Yeah, that's, look, that's a good question. And I tried to sort of answer it earlier on, and I know this has been a big focus of Compass and Neil over the last few years. I tried to answer it earlier on by saying, we can work, you know, we can find ways of working on policy and, and working on an opposition to the government with a party like the Lib Dems. I don't think you can get away from the fact that we are, you know, we are also competitors for a significant section of the electorate. And therefore, you know, it's not, it's not straightforward, this. And I, look, I'm slightly scarred by the sort of 2010 to 2015 experience uh, with the Lib Dems, because let's be honest, all of the things that happened, the grim things that happened in that period, 
wouldn't have happened without Nick Clegg and the Lib Dems making that fateful decision to be in that coalition. And maybe other people are more forgiving. So, so you know, well, I think there are ways you can, you know, oppose the government, oppose the government together. Issues about sort of electoral, you know, what, 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 what the position is at the next election, how much, you know, we take lumps out of each other, I think is a sort of, you know, is an issue for the next election. Okay, thank you. Um, next question is coming in from Penny. I'm going to read it out loud. Um, so Penny said, like Corbyn, you had a really hard press coverage. How much did that influence the outcome? I guess, what do we do about it? Uh, well, that's a, good, that's a good question. I was going to say it's a bit like the weather. Uh, you know, you complain about it, but it's not like the weather in that, in that sense. Uh, look, I don't think it helped. I think it's like a sort of, sorry to use a kind of, football metaphor, which I'm also not very kind of, not the biggest expert football. I think Yeovil, at least when I was a child, used to play on a sloping pitch. I sometimes think it's a bit like a sort of sloping, I don't know whether they do, so I may be wrong about this. Now, forgive me, Yeovil fans, if I'm wrong. But, you know, it's a bit like a sort of, you know, you're playing on a sloping pitch. And, you know, this is kind of partly what I said earlier. It's important to give whoever the leader of the Labour Party is a, a break because, you know, you can sort of eat a sandwich, just hypothetically, uh, and uh, it can become a sort of massive thing that's hung around your neck. You can hang a sandwich around your neck. Um, but, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's just definitely hard. But, you know, people, uh, you know, what, what, what do you do? I think, Neil, as a what do you do, I actually think to an extent in 2017, the Corbyn team found a way around it. Corbyn team momentum and so on found a way, uh, found a way around it. But you know it's 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 tricky. I mean you've got to. I mean you've got to. You've got to. I mean, the 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 conventional wisdom of twenty seventeen was you know you can bypass the press. The conventional wisdom of twenty nineteen was actually the real danger is that Facebook and social media is incredibly reinforcing the press. I had lots of people on doors in my constituency, you know, raising issues around Jeremy Corbyn terrorism and all that, and that was. You know, at least a large degree of that was 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 a Facebook thing. So I think it's really really tricky. I mean, I do think, by the way, that we've got to be much more worried and vigilant about these online platforms and the way you know th th these are. This is really the of frozen screens. There, there was a, there was a question about the right. I think in the chat, and you know the way the right uses these online platforms is incredibly dangerous. Now, it's not, again, it's not easy to do stuff about it, but you, you've got to do a better job than we're doing at the moment. Brilliant, thank you. Um, okay, moving on to the Green New Deal. Steve Williams had a question. I'm really, really a bit disappointed with your answer about attitudes to, to the, the parties. I just raised the question of whether the Green New Deal potentially could be that sort of radical unifying policy that enables Labour to the public imagination, draw in whole of the progressive left, provide a genuinely left way forward um, in answer to what is the most pressing problem of our generation, I guess. And I know you've talked about that. It seems to me that the Green New Deal could be that real driver that could be the linchpin to Labour as it moves into the next election. I mean, definitely, look, definitely, Steve. And I'm very committed to the Green New Deal. Actually, why I think the Green New Deal is important is because it takes the climate issue from being 
simply an environmental issue, which of course we all know it isn't simply an environmental issue. The environmental issue is incredibly important and makes and, and puts economic and social justice at the heart of it. Um, and that is just so crucial. And I think that is the great insight of the Green New Deal, which is um, which was born um, in the UK with a group of economists. Um, you know, obviously popularized by Alexandra Casio Cortez. Um, and we're going to be having a paper coming out on green recovery uh, in the coming weeks about how the government, you know, we face a massive challenge as a country. We are, when you look at what France is doing, what Germany is doing, they're spending tens of billions of euros on a green recovery. We are spending something like three billion pounds on a green recovery, if that. So, I completely agree with you about the galvanizing force of the Green New Deal. And, you know, definitely, I'm sure there are lots of other parties that will want to be part of it as well, but, you know, the more the better. And in a way, in this climate area in particular, you know, a healthy bit of competition is, is a good thing because the crisis is so deep and so great and we have such little time to turn it around. And, you know, what haunts me is that we, you know, out of the 10 years the UN have given us to turn things around, we've got four years under this government, at least four years under this government. We've got COP26 in uh, Glasgow next year. Now, hopefully we can push them to step up in the way that is necessary. China has recently made a, actually a big, quite a big stride forward, but, you know, and, 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 you know, in a sense, the COVID crisis is the focus of everyone's attention. This is, this crisis, you know, is not going away. In fact, it's intensifying. Okay, thanks. We're jumping around a lot here. Sorry about that. But um, next question from Tim Hughes. So the point I was trying to get at really was um, how do how does the Labour Party in particular involve the wider um, actually drawing up policies and drawing up the next manifesto? So I've had some interesting conversations with councillors who've talked about times when They've managed to do participatory policy making with local communities and kind of had meaningful relationships with them and that it's been very successful. And I know there has been a lot of talk about becoming a more open, outward facing organisation. And so with the last manifesto was, yeah, it was, it, it seemed unrealistic to a lot of people and that it had kind of come from the top down at the last minute. Um, what are you, Tim, are you a member and have you had an experience of, of try to contribute to policy or not um i'm only a new member i only joined last year so um i'm kind of basing what i said on what other more experienced members have said to me so i'm yeah I, i'm not I, sure I don't have experience I, i'm yet. not sure anyone has really got this right if i'm honest right. and you'd have thought in the sort of digital era we would be able to sort of do it better than we do it at the moment i mean you know Opposition has no consolation, but one of the things it does give you is time. And I think one of the things that we need to be doing is, and, and I sort of take this responsibility uh, seriously, is finding ways of engaging with members on, for example, these green issues that we're talking about. And I, I sort of, I hear what you say uh, about the last manifesto. I don't, not sure there's you know, I did any better on it. But I think it, I think we do, we have a national policy forum process, which, which you may or may not know about, which members can feed into. And that's a sort of group of people from different parts of the party that meet to talk about policy and it's got a sort of whole cycle process. But but I think, I mean, that, that let me take away that challenge, because the challenge that I had been thinking about, which is, it's, and it's, uh, you know, in some ways it's a harder challenge in the COVID era, but I think 
you know, we've seen that you can do, you know, things like this. And I think finding ways to, and I did a little bit of this in the summer around the green consultation we were doing ahead of this green recovery document, but I think finding ways to engage with people, I think is really, uh, is a really important point because there is a lot of wisdom. I think the other thing is you mentioned local councillors, you know, I hope one of the things that we will do for the next manifesto is learn from what, you know, Andy Burnham's doing Greater Manchester, what Sadiq is doing London. I mean, there are lots of, lots of other Metro mayors, you know, lots of lessons about what we can, what we can do. And organisations like Compass, you know, it doesn't just need to be through the formal mechanisms of the Labour Party. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, another question from Kieran, which you sort of addressed already a bit, but I think it's quite an interesting question. Hi, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say I, I love listening to your Reasons to Be Cheerful podcast. Oh. It gives me a lift every Monday morning as thank I walk you. into work. Thank you. But the question I want to ask is: It seems increasingly people want quite simplistic, or the electorate want quite simplistic answers, and I'm wondering. As we know, often, you know, getting things done is quite complex. So how in the age of the internet, et cetera, do we encourage people to think beyond those very simple solutions, to, you know, to accept it's a bit more complex? It's not quite as binary. So how do we get that more thoughtful discussion going? I mean, that is an interesting, that is a, that is a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, look, wh where I think you're right is that the, 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 the scary right, if I can put it that way, this way, um, has quite simplistic answers, which are, which have had some appeal. And that is definitely true. And lots of the things they do are based on that simplisticness. It's, 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 it's sort of simple answers. I think the electorate, they want a couple of things from us. I think they want a sense that, well, I, I think, take Brexit for a minute. You see, uh, or Brexit and the Trump election. I think we didn't, I think we, we, I don't know how you mean this we, but, but, but I think there was on the, on the other side of those arguments, I think we look unsympathetic to people's sense of loss. And I don't mean racism. I mean people's sense of loss of what, our society used to be like, and I don't want to go back to what our society used to be like in all respects at all, but security, solidarity, things that people valued. If you think about the modern, you know, think about this idea of take back control. Take back control, I think, is about risk. I think it's about the, the risk of being loaded massively onto individuals. And the state and business have both shed the, the, the sharing of risk. And so people basically were thinking, I'm on my own. And so I think take back control appeal. So, so, so I think the first thing I'd say is people is that we need to, we need to not just be like, uh, there's this interesting book by this guy, Michael Sandel, for the tyranny of merit, basically taking on the idea that meritocracy is the great answer. Um, uh, 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 and I think it's a subtitle of something like the politics of the common good. And so I think one, we, you know, we, we haven't empathised enough with people's sense of loss um, and, and the way our society, you know, th there were some important things that we lost in that, from that post-war settlement. Um, and secondly, I think, I wouldn't say simplistic, but I think people do want big answers. 
mean, people want, it's this, it's this paradox that Neil is pointing out, which is people want to know you can deliver, but I think people do want answers that are commensurate with the scale of the problems they see in our society. And that's the tricky challenge of how you make these big answers, answers that can seem viable, credible, and that people can vote for. Thanks, Grace, and thanks, members, for those uh, questions. I'm just going to come back on one thing very gently, Ed, but really to reflect what's come back in the chat thing, yeah. given, your, given your answers. And it is this thing, and it is a big thing for Compass, you know, this kind of alliance politics. You know, at one level, you know, we don't um, face Liberal Democrats in electoral competition. They're second in 90 seats, and 81 of those are against the Conservatives and in the other nine, they don't have a realistic, you know, much of a realistic ch chance of, 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 of damaging the Labour Party. There is, you know, we, uh, uh, given Scotland, Labour needs the Liberal Democrats to do very well in lots of places, just as they did in 97 when, you know, Labour got, uh, you know, ended up with a, with a landslide. But also, you, you know, you, you rightly and understandably questioned them in terms of the, the coalition they went into with the Conservatives. But if it was reversed, you know, would we build it, would we have, therefore, would we have a coalition with them? Should that have been the answer? Because you can't have it both ways. Um, and, and, and therefore, are you, do you believe that Labour can win on its own, given Scotland, given the Red Wall? And shouldn't we therefore be preparing the ground to work with people who now, you know, who are pro-Europe, who are um, strong on, on democracy, strong on green issues, now supporting universal basic income? Isn't it beholden on us to, to be a bit more positive? I mean, look, Gordon did try and have a coalition with them, I think, in 2010. Um, but, but, but the numbers weren't there. I mean, you know, uh, I was sort of, you know, there at the time. Um, and, and Clegg made a choice to go in with the Tories. I mean, can Labour win a majority? Yes. I mean, is it a very big uphill struggle? Of course it is. Um, but can Labour win a majority? Yes. And, you know, I mean... I'm, not, I'm absolutely not saying, you know, no to pluralism. I just want to sort of be clear about that. So pluralism in the way we do our politics, um, the, the way we work with others completely. I just don't think a sort of electoral alliance is the panacea that some people might, might think it is. I'm not sure the... Uh, I mean, look, you know, these will be decisions that, that Keir has to make at the election and all that. Um, and in a sense, they're sort of decisions above my pay grade, but... I don't think it's, you know, yes, we should be pluralist in our politics, but I don't, I don't think it is the panacea that people will think it is. Um, now, you know, we'll have to decide what we do. But also, I actually think the arguments for changing our electoral system go beyond trying to sort of get Labour in. I think it's sort of, you know, I think it's all right. I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So you know, uh, look, I know it's been a big thing of compass, and I don't. I think, I think, I think we can. I think we can definitely work with others, and we should work with others. And I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying because the Liberal Democrats went into coalition with the Tories in 2015, I refuse to, you know, cooperate with them on policy or work with them on various things. But but I don't think it's quite the panacea that maybe some people think it is. Um, finally. Um, Ed, um, normally we ask people what they, you know, what brings them, what gives them hope um, to end on a positive uh, note, but maybe we'll end with a question to you about, you know, what are the reasons to be cheerful? Um, what are the reasons to be cheerful? I think there are a number of sort of reasons for hope. Look, I think, I think first of all, we should sort of acknowledge 
the extraordinary heroism of lots of people during this crisis. I mean, the heroism of key workers, uh, the heroism of people in local communities looking after each other, you know, uh, all those essential workers, key workers who kept the country going at great risk themselves. You know, I think it's shown such you know, decency, such an such, such important thing about our country. Secondly, the, I know the clap for carers became, you know, sort of had a shelf life, but I mean, I think it showed, you know, a sense of, well, I think it did show coming together in communities and a, and a, and a sense of appreciation um, uh, uh, for people um, and for what, what so many people were doing for our society. Um, I think, I think the third thing I would say is that the young people who are demanding change on climate change are an incredible reason for hope because I think they have shifted the dial. I definitely think they shifted the dial. Now, does the dial remain shifted despite, um, you know, uh, COVID? Not necessarily. You know, we've got to keep the pressure on because there's so much further, uh, there's so much further to go. Uh, so that is a reason to be hopeful. I'll do, I'll do five, so I'll do two more. Um, the fourth reason to be hopeful is that if you think about one of the, virtually doing the podcast, you, you think about any problem we face as a society and their answers either already being done in our country or being done somewhere in the world. There's no insoluble problem which isn't being tackled uh, somewhere uh, where, we should, where, where there isn't a, a really good answer. And that's for the point of the... Uh, and that's the point of the podcast. And I suppose, I suppose the final thing is, um, is you know, part of, I mean, I lost the election in 2015, as I said earlier, when it escaped your listeners notice. But, you know, part of the story of progressive advance is you don't succeed the first time asking necessarily. And you, you don't give up and you don't say, I'm throwing in the towel you say, I'm going to keep going because, you know, the, I don't say all the ideas were right, but the, but, but the demand for justice, the demand for change, the demand to create a more equal society doesn't go away. Yeah, that's why I'm still involved in politics. Perseverance is everything and timing is everything as well, isn't it, Ed? Um, look, thanks so much for being on the call tonight. We're, we're really grateful. Thank you for all the members. I've never seen so many questions and points of discussion in the in the chat box. So you've really kind of um, got people going in, in, in good ways, Ed. So thank you very much. The regularity of the podcast is going to change a bit. I think we've tried everyone's patience. We started this in in March um, and have done them weekly, but you know we've we've pushed it a lot. We're going to move to fortnightly um, from now on. The next one will be on Tuesday, the thirteenth of October, at the usual time of six o'clock. When we'll be joined by Scottish commentator and political author Jerry Hassan to discuss Scottish Labour, independence, the SNP, and the possible breakup of the UK. So until then, thank you everyone, but especially thank you to Ed. Keep safe, well, hopeful, and cheerful. Thanks a lot, everyone. Good night. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic, and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one you can tweet me at neil n-e-a-l underscore compass or compass at compass office and if you've enjoyed this week's episode please give us a rating it will help us reach more listeners in the future 
And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too. <laughs>